0: you <laughs>
1: A swim or sink Living right is easy What goes wrong? You're causing it The drown Didn't want to turn that way You're causing it The drown Doesn't make a difference Now you're causing it The drown silence knows you can't tell far. part Happenstance is falling Cracks each day, too close now to change it Cause gold is lighter anyway Went in doubt, move on will need to sort it out You're with me now, we'll be again Are there points in between? I want to find the right side You're causing it. The drown didn't want to turn that way. You're causing it. The drown doesn't make a difference now. You're causing it. The drown, silence knows, can't drown. You're causing it The drown Didn't want to turn that way You're causing it The drown It doesn't make a difference now You're causing it
2: it's the arts report for March 26 thank you Robin um (laughs) we'll play the song later um But it's March 26, and it's time for the Arts Report again. Tonight on the show, we have Christine Kim here to talk about what's happening at the UBC Theatre. And we'll chat with Amy Henderson from Public Recordings Inc. about her collaboration with Ten Gates Dancing in the upcoming VIDF production, Room with Sticks. That's the Vancouver International Dance Festival. We also have arts reporter Rohit Joseph here with Daru Ravi to tell us about his new blog. And last but definitely not least, Matt Granlin from the Australian-Canadian Music Show will tell us about the recent event, Chelsea Hotel, that he saw at the Fire Hall Arts Centre. Woo! So we've got a busy hour ahead. So let's jump right in with Christine. Hi, Christine. Hi there. How are you doing?
3: I'm doing pretty good. Yeah.
2: So tell us what's happening at UBC
3: Theatre. Yeah. So... um March 20th, um, UBC Theatre started a production of Ubi Wa, which is um, not your conventional play production, to say the least. Um, Firstly, because the writer of it, Alfred Jerry, never wrote Ubi Ra to be your, you know, your normal play. (laughs) Um, uh, He first wrote the play in elementary school, actually, and for the very first showing of it in... um, 1896 in Paris, it actually created such an outrage in the public that it was immediately shut down and it wasn't actually performed for um, many many years later. Um, So the story itself revolves around the rise and fall of a greedy king, Um, but to be honest when you watch the play you recognize that the importance of the play isn't actually in the storyline itself, but how um, different aspects of theatrical representation come together in portraying the absurdist and nature of the plot. Um, and this is really important to understand because it speaks to how the stage set and how the costumes were deliberately created to exemplify the themes of chaos and disorder along with greed Ooh. and power. So it's definitely a play that when I saw I was definitely impacted by it and um, yeah. I like that those themes like
2: chaos and disorder and greed like it sounds so modern but actually they were issues you know at that time as well
3: mhm that's so true and you know if you actually look into more about how the uh, how Alfred Jerry actually came up with it um, it was it the main character um, of Ubiwa is based on a king which he actually wrote about um, to depict his physics teacher um, a man named Erbert and him and his classmates poked a lot of fun on, um, I guess, his character. And that really shows in how, um, in Alfred Jerry's view on um, things like authority um, in his life. So it's definitely, it's definitely something to watch. Wow. So tell me a bit more about how the plot unfolds. How the plot unfolds? Mm -hmm. So I don't want to give too much away, but it definitely starts off um, with, the schoolgirls. And originally it was schoolboys because at the time theater wasn't, um, women didn't actually have roles in the theater, but um, the way the director, Ryan Gladstone, he um, changed that and made it so that a group of schoolgirls were putting on the play um, of Ubi Ra. So Ubi Ra is um, the play by Alfred Jerry and these schoolgirls are going to present it to the audience. Um, And then the schoolgirls, since they are schoolgirls, the play itself isn't very professional, right? Because these are schoolgirls that are... um portraying it. And so uh, the rest of the storyline is just how they put on that production, how they um, act out being a king and a queen, how they act out the storyline of the play. And the way they do it is just absolutely insane. Um, There's lots of moments in the play where there's so much to look at and you just don't know what's going on. Um, And so It's really a play within a play, and that idea is stretched to the limits, for sure. Wow, that sounds really interesting. It reminds me of another sort of
2: play within a play that I was recently reading about. Hmm. Um, A local artist did an installation about it, but it was written, um, I think, in, like, it was uh, set in a mental hospital. So... Hmm. The play is set in a mental hospital where these patients put on a play. Um, so it's it's about how they do that, and it's it's set in sort of Napoleon time. So, yeah, it's really, I like that
3: concept. Yeah. So does it work? It. I mean, it definitely does. It's almost to the point where what's real and what's not real gets really confusing because even in the play itself, the schoolgirls, while they are playing, while they are enacting characters, some of the schoolgirls really start to actually become the characters that they're playing. Mm-hmm. And so um, obviously things get out of hand. And as the audience members, you are actually a part of the story because these schoolgirls are playing it for you. And so by the end of it, um, things like intermission and things like the final bow to are all incorporated into the storyline. And so where the story starts and where the story ends starts to get a re- really fuzzy. And I think that really speaks to um, what Alfred Jerry was trying to get at about meta theatricality and like what theater, like as a concept and just in real life, can like have, like the kind of impact you can yeah. have on it. So it's really deep and Wow, excellent. So t- can you give us the details of the event? <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's going to run till April 5th. Um, it's at the Freddie Wood Theater every single night at 7.30 p.m. $10 for UBC students, $22 for just regular tickets, and $15 for seniors.
2: Excellent, Thank you, Christine. And what's coming up next at UBC Theatre? Anything for this season or is that it for uh, the season? That's, that's the final um, production, yeah. <laughs> okay. Until the fall yeah, again. Yeah, until the fall. Wow. No, that sounds really interesting. You've gone to see quite a few now, haven't you? hmm Excellent. Well, I want to talk about the dance festival a little bit. Um, CITR has been sponsoring the Vancouver International Dance Festival, one of the sponsors. So uh, last week I talked with arts reporter James Connell about Kokoro Dance. And this week, I went out to see a dance production. Um, Israel Galvan, he's a flamenco dancer. So I, we chatted about, about him last week a bit, but he's reputed to be one of the most accomplished and innovative flamenco dancers in the world. And he's sort of known for infusing traditional flamenco with kind of contemporary dance moves. Um, and I've talked about this before on the show because I love flamenco, and one of the the, the things I like about it is this concept of el duende. Um, it's a it's an earth spirit that the performer calls into being um, through the dance, and they sort of struggle together in the dance, like on an imaginary level, and and evoking a power. Like if you can really get the struggle going with el duende, it evokes this power that's experienced by the audiences almost unendurable, and people have written sort of literary essays on it and so on. So I was like, oh, is he going to do it? Like, is he going to bring up El Duende? Um, And so, but he started out, there was a square of light on the stage. He enters the stage and steps into the square of light, and he sort of bows and gestures. And then I was like, okay, he's like acknowledging El Duende. So I was like, let's see what happens. Um, So he was totally amazing, like tall and lithe. He would do these lightning-fast rhythms, which, you know, he'd beat them out on the floor with his feet and also using his hands to, like, hit basically every part of his body, and they use these very complicated, uh, unusual rhythms um, and different rhythms, like, with his hands, with his feet. He even would, like, tap out rhythms on his teeth at times to make this really cool, resonant sound. Um, and But I wasn't totally keen on the way he merged... A traditional flamenco and contemporary moves, because he'd kind of do like the fast footwork of flamenco, but then he'd kind of do these kind of vogue. It reminded me of kind of voguing. Like he'd like he'd suddenly be kind of like miming or stopping. And I mean, I could see why people like it, but it wasn't totally my thing. I just didn't think there was enough synergy to it. Like combining the two didn't create a greater whole, right? Um, and I did feel like because he would do the kind of more voguing type moves then it slowed it down and how you bring El Duende into flamenco is like this kind of increasingly frenzied letting go uh, during the performance so I didn't I didn't ever feel I was like oh he's almost there but I didn't ever feel like he got there but who brought El Duende to the stage was actually the cantor the singer he was absolutely incredible like he sang from the gut like this haunting, yearning, kind of eerie, earthy, traditional Spanish singing. Like you just, I felt like I was like suddenly in a desert, like transported and just like this human condition. Like you really felt it. And I was like, oh, he got it. Um, And his brother played the Spanish guitar. They were both incredible. So they, they planned out the interplay of the music and the dance very nicely to give kind of breaks. Like the dancer would take a break, the music would play, then the musicians would take a break, and then they'd all play together, and they'd all compliment each other with flamenco's very, like, um, party community music, so people clap and join in, they shout encouragement, so it was still, because it was like a contemporary dance, it was very, in a sense, kind of stylized, uh, but it was really great, Um, And the audience loved it. Like at the end, we just, you know, Vancouver audiences can be very staid, but everyone just like burst out of their seats and this sort of ruckus applause, standing ovation. So I really enjoyed it. It was a great opportunity to see like a world-class dancer um, at the Vancouver International Dance Festival. So I want to play you some Spanish music right now we are have amy henderson we're going to get her on the phone she's from the upcoming production of 10 gates dancing so give us a little bit of time you can play some spanish music this is the artist isaac albanes Albanese. Um, and enjoy that while we get amy henderson on the phone stay tuned <laughs> We're back on CITR 101.9 FM, and I'm here on the phone with Amy Henderson. Hi, Amy. Hi there. Great. That's nice we can hear each other. So you work, live and work in Toronto, is that right?
4: That is correct. I'm a, I'm a BC girl, though. I grew up on Vancouver Island, so Toronto is my home away from home.
2: Yeah, it's sure nice there. So you are a part of um, an organization called Public recording inc is that
4: correct i am uh yeah i'm a i'm a choreographer and I, I work um independently but also with a collective of um of artists called public recordings and then this project is a collaboration with another organization called 10 gates dancing inc so it's the two two companies and their affiliated artists working together okay so tell me a little bit about your background in choreography um, I came to dancing through um, uh, mostly through improvisation and um, c- creative projects as a kid. So I wasn't really a, a studio uh, dancer. I grew up in a really small town, so I was doing whatever whatever dance there was to access, which was a, a real mixed bag of things. And um, when I finished high school, I moved to Montreal and. Entered a, a creative program at Concordia University, which is m- mostly c- concentrating on choreography and making making work. So that was my that was my training, and then I went on to keep keep uh, investigating choreography um, through lots of different projects and collaborations.
2: One of the things I liked in the Public Recordings Inc. website was this idea of doing education. Is that or research and education? Is that can you tell me a bit more about that?
4: I suppose it's 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 really comes from my artistic um, investigations that it, it feels useful to always imagine that you're you're not uh, an expert in what you're doing and that you constantly need to refresh your um, your understanding and get into situations where the way you're working isn't just about. Um, making something a finished show and producing it and putting it on stage and having a paying audience but but there's also moments to work where you're not focused on creating something finished but rather uh, researching how to make and why we make and working with other people to figure out different ways of of working on things so my company and the Artists that I work with, I think, are very dedicated to re- research as part of artistic practice, and we try to find ways to do that in um, different shapes and in configurations, and and uh, and even even a lot of the pieces, like the one that we're working on here, have that investigative kind of uh, tone to them.
2: So tell me a little bit about the performance coming up. It's March 27th, 28th, and 29th, 7 p.m. at the Roundhouse, part of the Vancouver International Dance Festival. And it's called Room with Sticks. It it looks really interesting from the write-up here.
4: Room with Sticks is a collaboration between three artists, myself Ted Robinson, who is a choreographer and a performer, and Charles Cuivon, and he's an experimental composer and musician. And the three of us uh, came together and sort of figured out a a shared vocabulary to explore movement, but also working with um, objects and with sound and a a pretty particular approach to space. So we've been working for a few days at the roundhouse transforming the exhibition hall into the setting for this performance and that that process of preparation is a really big part of what we're what we're um, engaged with we take a lot of um, time to spend um, time in the space and make sounds in the space and move things around in the space to figure out what the what the most appropriate way is of um Kind of meeting that space as as people in in it,
2: so can you give me an idea of the ambience you're trying to create for the show?
4: I would call it uh, sort of a spacious um, patient um, uh, contemplative to to a certain extent, but not heavy. Uh, uh, way of um, letting things occur in time. So I think we, all three of us, are trying to cultivate a a, a performance state that allows things to happen rather than through sort of force um, action. So it may the the, the atmosphere may seem um, sort of uh, slow or um yeah it has a, it has a kind of a, uh, silence to it, even though there's a lot of sound going on. It, it it's a it's a it's a really roomy um, environment where we try to exist for a while and invite the audience to be in that space as well. And there's a we're working with wood and sticks, and so there's also this kind of natural um, relationship to the natural world and to um, the materials of of the natural world and how we're relating to those things as as objects that inform what we're doing as well as um, offer us things to do um, in this in this kind of space we've created.
2: So Ted Robinson from the Ten Gates Dancing uh, was studied as a monk in a Zen monastery in Ottawa, is that right? Yes,
4: yeah, he was a, uh, a Zen monk for I think about eight years, um, and that's quite informed his, um, his practice in lots of ways. And I can't um, speak to it directly because it's definitely his path, but uh, it's um, it's a it is for sure a part of his um, the way that he approaches making things and and being in general.
2: Yeah, like it sounds, it sort of reminds me of that in terms of creating this open space for the present moment. Um, and it says here that it concerns reconstruction rather than deconstruction. What
4: does yeah, that mean? Yeah, I think we. Again, not not wanting to speak for the other two, but I would say that I, I certainly have this in the last few years: this interest in 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 trying to create work that isn't about just taking things apart, and um, which has definitely been uh, uh, an important um, trend in the arts in general, and which you know we've we've needed to. Uh, take things apart, deconstruct things, look at things, try to figure out why we 're doing what we're doing and 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 critique um, ways of working and and um, methodologies and how how and what gets made and I think at a certain point I just was I, I became very curious about what would happen if those same impulses of of being critical and being really engaged and 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 not giving up on any of my um my insistence on wanting to to to, to 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 make things that challenged the status quo and 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 offered other ways of being uh, but but to kind of look at that as a way as a as a production of possibilities rather than just taking apart what we know doesn't work so I think in very very literal terms we we're, we're building things and balancing objects is the, the pr- one of the primary um activities in this performance, but I think on a, maybe on a philosophical or conceptual level, we're also making a case for, for constructing, um, uh, proposals for being that are, that are, um, yeah, in, in the way that you said, uh, uh c- constructing rather than deconstructing.
2: Mm-hmm. And what was your exact role in terms of, like, what you contributed to this collaboration?
4: I think that we are all coming from our own point of view and interest, meeting as performers and creators in the studio. So I'm a performer, I'm a choreographer, I'm a collaborator. Um, in certain moments, I am an outside eye for the other two or an outside ear. and In other moments, they are doing that for me. So there's a kind of fluidity around how we're trying to share the responsibilities, both artistic and practical of this project, um, which maybe diverges a little bit from how I normally work and how a lot of people work, where there's really defined rules. And it's often the case that I would be either directing something and not performing in it or performing and somebody else would be. Um, in charge of, of exactly what was going on so in this we're we're trying to f- find a way of working all together on on the show so we're we're all makers and all performers
2: excellent well it sounds like a really interesting performance is sort of a full experience for the audience I hope so. Yeah, so we'll have a great time in Vancouver. Okay. Yeah, and I will just sign off, but I'll give the details first. March 27th to 29th, 7 p.m. at the Roundhouse. That's 10 Gates Dancing, Inc. in partnership with Public Recordings, Room with Sticks. Um, So thank you, Amy Henderson. I really enjoyed talking to you.
4: Thanks, Sarah. And it's very important that everyone knows that the performance is free. Oh, really? That's fantastic. Yes. I think you need to buy a, a, a membership to the festival, which is $3. But then once you buy that, then you can see any of the other performances as well um, with that same membership. So our performance is at 7 o'clock, and it is uh, free to the public.
2: Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Okay. Okay, take you. care. Okay, yeah. bye-bye. Okay, we'll be right back with Rohit, Daru, and Matt Grenlund.
0: Oh my, become a friend of CITR and get great discounts downtown at...
4: The Baker and the Chef, Bango T-Shirts, Cherry Bomb, House of Vintage, Beats Street Records, Down Levy Snack Bar, The Full Tattooing, Fortune Song Club, His Boutique, Pacific Cinematheque, Perch, The Portside Pub, Save on Meats, Vinyl Records, and Zoo Shop.
0: Wow, it sure does pay to be a friend of CITR. Find out more, visit us in room 233 of the sub on the UBC campus. Go online to www.citr.ca. Keep smiling, keep shining, knowing you can always count on me. sure, that's what friends.
3: On Thursday,
5: April 3rd, the craft brewery Steam Whistle's unsigned indie music series returns to Vancouver. This year, Redbird, Rolla Oak, and JP Maurice will take the stage at the Biltmore Cabaret. She
0: pulled me apart from the beginning.
5: Tickets are only $5 at the door, with 100% of the proceeds going back to the community through Music Heels. For more information, check out Steam Whistle's unsigned indie music series on Facebook.
2: Hi, we're back on the Arts Report on CITR one hundred one point nine FM. This is Sarah Lapsley, and I'm here with Rohit Joseph. Hello. Hi, and Daru Ravi. Is that right? Yep. yep. Sorry, can you say can you greet again? I didn't have your (laughs) mic set.
6: I am Rohit Joseph, uh, guest contributor here at uh, the Arts Report.
2: And. A class act
6: oh yes and of class act fame I must I must uh, plug that in there thank thanks for reminding me (laughs) Uh, and I'm
7: Daru Ravi uh, a student here at UBC
2: okay great I'm just gonna ask you to speak right into the mic when you talk cuz otherwise it doesn't pick up as well now you contacted me because you said Daru had a really interesting project and I checked it out today online I was really impressed so I'm excited to have you guys in and hear more about uh, what you've done
6: yeah, Sweet, yeah. Uh, well, I'll just tell you how I got to know about it because Daru is my good friend and uh, he just called me up one day and he told me uh, basically that he had gone and done some interviews in the shelters and he told me about how how affected he was emotionally from it and then and then we just kind of got to talking. Uh, but I will let him explain the background, so Daru, tell the folks out there... Uh, how did the project come to be, and what got your interest? What sparked it? Uh, well i
7: I was coming home one day from school and I was on the bus and I ran into a gentleman who was a metal worker and he had a full- time job and he was earning enough to to sort of eat and and stay alive. but from the conversation it, it seemed like he was so down to a point that all he was able to do was work and live at a shelter and as soon as he told me he was living at a shelter, it it, it really surprised me because he had a full-time job. He had uh, relatively good health, but he was forced to live in a shelter because of his circumstances and drug problems. So it, it changed my perspective on what homelessness actually is rather than me being, it's laziness to shifting my perspective to, it, it's much more complicated than just that.
2: yeah. And you go to the Sodder School of Business, yeah, don't you? So yeah. it's kind of an unusual epiphany for a business student to have. <laughs> uh,
7: <laughs> it, yes, because, I mean, you're surrounded by uh, a lot of driven individuals and, and individuals from uh, a fortunate background, mm-hmm. uh, we can say, and also the the sort of influence money has at, at solder. So it, it was really a, a a change in perspective when... I witnessed this firsthand and that was sort of the inspiration for the project was was running into this gentleman on the bus.
2: Mhm. And so what happened next? Uh
7: from there we um we we got together a group of individuals who were also uh relatively passionate about uh, homelessness in Vancouver and from there we took on the the sort of awareness campaign because we've had our perspectives changed and we wanted other people to also change their perspectives coming from a background of, uh, fortunate, um, privilege, privilege. And, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That really struck me. You know, I work in the mental health field and I, you know, I, I, I'm well aware of the problems like in the downtown east side and addiction. Mm-hmm. And yet I, 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 even I was struck by, wow, these are working people. You mm-hmm. know, like, or this is a guy that was, like, married, had a good job, mm-hmm. and just circumstances unfolded so that he's homeless. And it's it could yeah. be any of us, like, with enough, like, misfortune. It could be any of us. And, and also the uh, immigrant, I don't know if they were related, but two uh, people that had immigrated yeah. and then hadn't received enough support and were working hard and struggling to keep their family together. And um yeah. You know it was it was like, "Whoa, they came here for a better life, and yeah. it didn't turn out that way, yeah, yet. And
6: just to give some context, uh, what Sarah was mentioning there is the um, basically Daru decided to set up uh, a website that uh, documents these interviews that he had with the people. it's uh, of course they're they are anonymized so you don't know the actual identities of these people, but they are. Uh, based on the real conversations that he had. So, uh, Daru, why don't you describe kind of like the day you went into the shelter, the first time you went into the shelter to actually do the interviews and what that that process must have been like.
7: Yeah, so, I mean, first we approached um, the government of of BC and um, sort of the city of Vancouver uh, in the hopes that they would be able to guide us, but they really weren't able to sort of, point us in the right direction or sort of get us access to it. They did provide us some uh, guidance in a sense, sort of the the grand picture of how we would approach this. But at the end all, it was you need to get yourself to a shelter and you need to talk to the shelter administrators because we're not sort of directly associated with them. So from there, we went on to approach different shelters. We got turned down by a lot of them Mm -hmm. because they didn't want uh, the individuals there talking to people about their problems and because we weren't we aren't social health workers we aren't psychiatrists we aren't psychologists so they didn't want these individuals talking to us but eventually we got into a shelter where the individuals were relatively stable uh, mentally and emotionally and this was the Richmond uh, Salvation Army a men's shelter and they provided us with uh, direct face-to-face contact with these individuals and from there we were able to gather the interviews and
6: put it on the website. So that actually sparks the question: What made you decide to do the website? What, um, why do you feel that that this is an effective avenue uh, for getting your message across? Uh, this particular, uh, you know, the whole social media aspect. Of course, it's big, but yeah, what made you choose this realm? Um, it's it's easily accessible. Uh, that's that's the number one
7: thing: is that people are just a click away from reading these stories. Yeah uh and we we've thought about videos and and things like that but we felt that having having a medium that that allowed the words to come out and allowed uh people's emotions to be sort of directly uh read from a page it 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 was it was in our opinion a lot better than somebody just sitting there and watching a video or um a, a news broadcast or something like that
2: hmm i liked uh, how you asked questions like you got their stories and then you asked questions like you know what do you think would make a difference what would you say to Gregor Robertson mm-hmm. yeah. you know if he was in the room and I was really I was yeah. touched by what people said make these shelters like a home like make it more like a home for people so they feel comfortable that was yeah. one answer that struck out
7: yeah and th- th- that is um a very common answer actually among all of them is that they feel like when they're in the downtown east side that they're they're um, part of the problem. They, they feel like they cannot get out of it because um, the truth of the matter is some of these individuals uh, don't want to get out of it or are in such a bad state that they're unable to get out of it. But there are individuals who are also on the borderline where they're, like you said, they they have jobs and they're working. So when they're exposed to this sort of extreme uh, concentration of of negativity, they They're pulled back into it, mm-hmm. and even one of the interview one of the interviewees was a former drug addict, and he felt that when he came back out to the downtown east side after rehab and everything, he felt the need or urge to go back into it because it was such a concentration and yeah, and so it's making these shelters like a home really promotes change in these people mm-hmm. because they come back and they feel like they have warm food, they have a house and and yeah, it really promotes change.
2: How has the response been from kind of your fellow business students? Like to hear this from you versus mm-hmm. the media where people, you know, people kind of polarizing their political views in response to the media. Like how did your friends at school or, or people at school respond to the issue of homelessness?
7: Mm-hmm. Uh, generally, it was very surprising because it, in, in my perspective, I always thought they would they would. Uh, resort to things, resort to statements like "Oh, it's it's their fault, they're lazy." But a lot of the people after reading the website and after <laughs> reading the interviews, I'm not, I'm not because I didn't have much of the interaction before it. But after reading the interviews on the website, they were, they were changed people. I mean, I even got an email from uh, a student uh, at Soder who read the th- uh, read the interviews and and she outright came out and said I was wrong. Hmm. Wow. But, yeah, she she. In an email to to us uh, through a contact form, she she told us she was wrong and and she thanked us for for doing this because now she she has um, she has a passion or the or the need to tell other people that homelessness is not just laziness.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing because when you think about those of us that work in the mental health field, it's like we're kind of preaching to the converted in a way, but actually changing minds, changing people's opinions where they thought differently is, wow, amazing. Mm
6: -hmm. So uh, just where do you see it going from here? I mean, do you want to add more stories as time goes on? Like, yeah, how do you see uh, the website? Which, by the way, you should probably let people know. Yeah, the
7: website is vanhomelesscampaign.weebly.com. Again, vanhomelesscampaign.weebly.com. Um, so how do I, how do I see this campaign going? Mm -hmm. Well, our ultimate goal is to change as many minds as possible. And whether that means running this campaign forever or, or for a specified period of time, it, it doesn't matter. Um, and our ideal goal is to get, get so much recognition and so many minds sort of in our direction that the mayor has to respond
6: Mm -hmm. right yeah
7: is that um the so the government has to respond and say you know okay there are these certain issues and this is how we plan on fixing them
6: yeah coming up with an actual plan not just saying something yeah like uh and yeah and what i meant by like do you want to add more are you think is is the idea maybe to get more stories and accumulate these into a series of interviews uh, if possible? Like maybe when you get more recognition, the access might become easier. Yeah,
7: I mean, th- that'd be great. Or Originally, we had 10 interviews and we cut them down to five that were uh, very unique and very mm-hmm. different because uh, we found that there are sort of uh, Patterns, groups. Yeah, there are groups of, of, of individuals, uh, whether it be drug addiction, whether it be uh, a refugee, mm-hmm. whether it be uh, mental health issues whether it be old
6: age so yeah, it,
7: yeah
2: that's also important our seniors to, yeah
6: that's so important mm-hmm. to realize that that that's not like homeless people are one big no. category there's these subdivisions like between families yeah. uh yeah seniors mentally ill yeah exactly wow that's and in,
2: ad- in addition to outright homelessness i mean we know that people are also inadequately housed mm-hmm. right in horrible yes. single rooms with yeah Bed bugs and cockroaches and unsafe environments and yeah. you know so if you I'll ask you first if you were in the room with Gregor Robertson <laughs> what would you want to tell him
6: me Rohit or <laughs> Rohit. okay for each uh, yeah each of us uh, what would I want to tell Gregor Robertson oh that's put me on the spot there Sarah um,
2: do you want some time
6: I I would probably just say to him don't make it another campaign promise but actually build a plan that will go beyond your own term. Because obviously these issues are not something that's going to be fixed within an election cycle. Yeah. It's like he and he is not going to be able to solve these issues, but he needs to get some kind of committee together to really work on a plan that's maybe 10 years it'll take to actually... Execute. You know, it, it it needs to be a long-term plan. So that that would be what I would say. To her. Okay. Work, think of working on a real long-term solution.
2: Okay. What would
6: th- what would you say, Daru, after um, your hands-on experience? Uh, uh, the the
7: biggest thing I would say is make sure, like one of the individuals said, make sure the money is going to the right place. Of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- there are many organizations in Vancouver that are working to solve this issue. There's a lot of money going into solving homelessness and handing these individuals money is not going to solve it and that that's what i mean by make sure the money is going to the right places make sure this money is going to the services and to the cause of making shelters a better place to live and that's what i would tell him is Mm -hmm. is to make sure the money is going to the right place. Yeah,
2: And I mean, that's what no politician wants to hear, right? It's going to cost (laughs) lots of money. I mean, because if you think about providing services to people like seniors, like you catch them before they end up homeless. Mm -hmm. Like a senior should never be homeless in our Mm -hmm. society, right? Like, so putting money in place on that level, and then if they do come into trouble, like, yeah, a variety of really well-supported social housing options. and, build, and strong communities. I think that's part of the reason we have so many problems. People don't live in community like we're really meant to. Mm-hmm. People end up isolated and lonely and in trouble.
7: Yeah. And, and the concentration of, of homeless individuals in the downtown east side is very worrying because then you create a community. Right. Yes. Right. It's It's because of that high density concentration. These individuals want to be around there because their friends and, and people in similar situations mm-hmm. are around that area. And drug dealers and crime, drug dealers and crimes come to that area because these individuals are, are vulnerable. Yeah. So break, break up the shelters. Yeah. You, may, you know, uh, distribute the shelters evenly across downtown and even other areas in the lower mainland.
2: Yeah, for sure. Well, I've got... Matt Granlund outside the studio we're going to be talking about uh, the Chelsea Hotel show at the Firehall Arts Theatre but I you know I know there's actually some art shows and events on around town that actually deal with homelessness and other kinds of mental health Hmm. issues people are sort of integrating artistic endeavor and um, social issues like more than I've ever seen so it is great so uh, definitely stay in touch Um, you've got a Facebook page as well could you give us the information about your blog Uh, Again?
7: uh, The blog is at vanhomelessnesscampaign.weebly.com. That's vanhomelessnesscampaign.weebly.com. You can find the interviews and all the information you need.
2: Excellent. Well, thanks for coming in, Rohit. Have you got a few beats for us on your way out?
6: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not today. Not Not today. today, Class Act will be back. And by the way, Daru is also part of class act yeah. oh yeah, yeah. excellent he was my beatbox tutor so i felt a uh, guru you could say, guru, it. <laughs> you could say.
2: <laughs> well it's just it's been excellent to have class act on so next time i have them on maybe you'll come sweet, sweet, yeah. 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 yeah well thanks a lot we'll be Thank back you. in just a few minutes on citr 101.9 fm
5: my name is david scott i play wide receiver for the university of british columbia football team and i'm here to discuss the be more than a bystander program Myself and a few other players were lucky enough to work alongside the BC Lions and EVA, the Ending Violence Association, to support this cause. The main goal of the Be More Than a Bystander initiative is to increase awareness of domestic violence against women. For more information on the cause, please visit endingviolence.org. We be, uh
0: uh-huh.
3: Jihad for Love, Whitewater Black Gold, A Red Girl's Guide to Reasoning, East Hastings Pharmacy, Way Way Never Sorry, Misrepresentation.
6: Cinema Politica UBC screens politically charged films with speakers and discussions every month. Screenings take
7: place at the Norm Theater in the Sub and our by donation. To learn more, visit cinemapolitica.org slash UBC.
2: Hi, uh, you're listening to The Art Support. I'm Sarah Lapsley. So we've just got the last 10 minutes, and I'm here with Matt Granlund. How are you, Matt?
5: Good, thanks, Sarah.
2: Good. Well, thanks for coming in. Now, it's a pleasure. In under the guise of being an arts reporter, you went to see a production at the Firehall Arts Centre. Why don't you tell us about it?
5: Uh, yes, it's the the Chelsea Hotel, the songs of Leonard Cohen, uh, listeners have probably seen a lot of posters around town for it. It's been well produced, well publicised, because this play has been going for 150 performances at least over two years. So it's a well rehearsed, seasoned show, um, and it is based on the work of Leonard Cohen, which is um, who is a, an incredible songwriter and a, an a iconic Canadian. And it's in musical form, and it includes six performers. And what's quite unique is that they all play instruments. There's up to 17 different instruments that are passed around. So these are incredibly talented human beings. I saw at least two people playing upright bass and then going and dancing and playing the fiddle and then coming back. And you know, So it's extraordinary. Um, I, yeah. <laughs> I have to
2: say, it doesn't sound like my thing, but it sounds like you really liked it.
5: Well... It's not generally my thing either. I don't like musicals, but (laughs) the difference is the incredible words of Leonard Cohen. Right. Like every single word of every single song is a Leonard Cohen word. So you know you're getting your bang for your buck lyric wise, right? So I guess one thing that's odd about it is that Leonard Cohen's music is melancholy and solemn. And yet this play has a complete carnival feel to it it's it's all about theatricality and performance and emotion but his songs aren't about that so it is disconcerting in that way it shouldn't work but it does is
2: it is there a plot
5: there is actually a plot but it's very difficult to discern it (laughs) the basic plot is that um uh the main character is a writer who is struggling to overcome his writer's block and is forced to revisit his past and memories of loves and friendships that still haunt him so that's what I was trying to think the whole time, and all the expression that you see, and the the eye gazing between characters, and you're trying to work out why, what is this all about? Like, is this related to Lennon's words, or is it part of a script? But you just don't know. There's so much going on; it's impossible to really see that there is a story behind it, if that makes sense. So,
2: so it's mostly about music.
5: Well, it's 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 about this this guy's writer's block and his friends who are all around him from his past and i guess but i mean it's singing singing and dancing the whole time so it is the songs you know it's it's just in a really different form than what you'd expect um you know even that the lead character is uh he's actually more like bruce springsteen than Leonard cohen and his his persona and and there's actually a, a rock and roll component to it um there's so much different instrumentation like there's there's banjos in suzanne there's kazoo in I'm your man.
2: <laughs> I'm just like, it has basically everything I hate in it.
5: I, I I'm <laughs> yeah, I know. like, it's
2: dancing kazoos. Yeah. Banjos, there's, Leonard Cohen.
5: There's a full rock band for hallelujah, you know? It's yeah. Just, so you got to give them credit for, um, doing it differently. Apparently Leonard hasn't seen it. Um, he's been invited, but he's a busy guy. He's still tours into his eighties, I guess. Um, so so if you're a real Leonard Cohen purist, you might, yeah, have your kind of um, expectation and be a little bit reserved about it. But um, if you're in town, you're a Leonard Cohen fan, I, I reckon you should go. Well,
2: it's sold out. I don't think you even can go if if oh. you want. It's sold, it's, it runs until this Saturday, oh. uh, the 29th, but it says on the website... That they they had only a few tickets left la- left for the the nine o'clock show on the last night. Yeah. It's uh, so well received, and you did like it. Like, yeah,
5: like what yeah. what
2: did you like about it?
5: Just because, um, like, well, I mean, the sheer talent of the people on stage is remarkable. Like actors who sing and play music very very well. Um, and I like I said, I just love the lyrics. I mean, I've been loving Leonard Cohen now. I've got the, my parents actually sent me this biography, so it was good timing. This is I'm my your man. And if there's time, I mean, if I could talk a little bit about his character and who he really was, or who he, who he is, because he's still alive. Um, I just loved immersing myself in his words, because he's a brilliant poet. He's, Bob Dylan is a songwriter. Leonard Cohen is a poet. You know, I- different...
2: It's funny because I had two friends that got into a huge argument at a party, Leonard Cohen versus Bob Dylan. Have we had this conversation? Well,
5: many people have probably right. had this conversation Right, okay, so it's, it's
2: like the Beatles versus the Rolling yeah. Stones. I mean, to me, Bob Dylan, hands down, is the winner.
5: Bob Dylan's a real songwriter, like the best there's ever been. And
2: a better lyricist.
5: Well, I mean that's and that's where you can and more breadth forever. of
2: imagination. That's <laughs> yeah. Well, I I'm mean, not purposefully being combative. It's really oh, yeah. about how much I dislike Leonard Cohen.
5: Well, this, this is see, this is why I wanted to read you a bit about uh, to understand who the man is. I mean, he uh, is a deeply, deeply thoughtful human being um, and uh, depressive and melancholy for a reason. He has talked at length about severe clinical depression. So. Uh, he doesn't write happy songs, and mm-hmm. that's why he's not a mainstream figure. His mother actually suffered from depression and went hospitalised. So as you probably know, Sarah, I guess there is some genetic component to that. And he was raised in incredible fr- privilege. I mean, in a very affluent Jewish area in uh, Montreal, he went to McGill. He was an established poet. He was a literary, almost godlike figure already by he was 30, before he even started in his career in music. Um, So, I mean, in terms of mental health, it just goes to show that there's something deep there. No matter where you come from on your great affluence, um, that black dog is there. And Mm -hmm. he's made something out of it that people relate to. And interestingly, I found in his book here that he did actually tour mental hospitals, um, similar to how Johnny Cash went to prisons. Mm -hmm. And he said here in his book, he said... um, I was drawn to mental hospitals through the feeling that the experience of a lot of people in mental hospitals would especially qualify them to be receptive audiences for my work. In a sense, when someone consents to go to a mental hospital or is committed, he has already acknowledged a tremendous defeat. To put it another way, he has already made a choice. And it was my feeling that the elements of this choice and the elements of this defeat correspond with certain elements that produce my songs. Oh, God do you agree i
2: think it's so incredibly self-centered and narcissistic well that that whole passage
5: yeah maybe um
2: like it's about him they would like my songs because he's seeing them through how he would see the world instead of like oh you know people well, have quite a you know anyways yeah that's well, my bias i'm sorry well
5: true and and i mean the the rest of it goes um there's certain elements that produce my songs and that there would be an empathy between the people who had this experience and the experience documented in my songs. Um Yeah. I hear where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You can't generalize about all the circumstances. Yeah. Of-
2: like he, you know, I'm sure there would be some, I'm sure people would like his music because it's music. Like if you think about those famous Johnny Cash, Folsom prison ones, like, yeah, he got them and they got him. They loved mm. it. Right. And it might've been the same. It, like it, you know, you, you could only know from people who were at the concert. Yeah. Um,
5: Any, anyway, I mean, he was deeply moved to do that. And and he has talked about his severe depression, and, yeah. and which actually led him to Buddhism, because he, there's some great interviews online where he talks about when you're really, really deeply, truly suffering, that's the time when you want to find a different uh, way of thinking and
2: suddenly like overwhelmed with guilt for trashing Leonard Cohen in the last 10 minutes well there's a
5: lot I'm telling you there's a and he's even worked with soldiers too. another he went to uh where is it he went to Tel Aviv in 1973 there was a a war the Yom Kippur war and he uh he was he performed like you know the USO shows in uh, Vietnam but it was much more low-key it sounds like he was sitting very close like this to soldiers and he'd talk with them and interact with them a lot and uh, a fellow Israeli singer said, and this is his direct quote, he said he was a very modest person with the soul of a philosopher wondering about the meaning of life and um, really caring about the soldiers in the world. So, you know, he, there's a lot more... I've learned a lot more about him in, in the last week and more than we can talk about now.
2: Just looking at the book, maybe I'm just bitter because he's so, like, manly and, you well, know, had such an effect on women. Maybe that's why...
5: Well, it's true, and he wasn't... He's not the most politically correct guy. He was a womanizer. He, yeah. yeah. Definitely. I mean, but, you know, he, he still... He had the soul of a philosopher. Uh, he's
2: he, a great he, Canadian. There's yeah. no two ways about it.
5: Yeah, and 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 for an inspiring songwriter like myself, he's like he's like a go-to. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, I mean, as you say, it's probably sold out this uh, this event, but uh, it'll probably be back. I think they should franchise th- th- I, this thing. I think
2: they had it already, actually. This is the second run at the Firehall
5: Arts Center. So yeah. I'm really
2: glad you got a chance to go and you really liked it.
5: Well, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it was w- it was different. We're
2: like seriously out of time. So no, it's six o'clock.
5: Is it t- can we go out with um, one song? Yeah, we're
2: going to go out with a song, but I'm just going to wrap up and say yeah. thank you for joining us on the Arts Report. Thank you, Matt Granlin. Sorry, I kind of like created some...
5: Oh, no, this Friction is Friction
2: around the uh, Leonard Cohen thing. No, um, debate is good. So next week, we're going to be into the fabulous Festival of verses. We're going to have guests and lots of coverage on that. Um, stay tuned at, after this song for UBC Arts On Air. So, Matt, why don't you introduce this
5: song? Actually, do you want to put a different one in? The Future? Okay. It's real easy. And I'll tell you why. Because I just was at um, Simply Computers today, a shop here in Vancouver, getting my MacBook checked out. And the guy saw my iTunes Leonard Cohen, and he said, "You must be a fan." I said, "Yeah," and he told me this song is brilliant, and it is because it's got incredibly prophetic lyrics in it.
2: Great! Um, So here we go, Leonard Cohen, the future. Thanks, Matt. Stay tuned for UBC Arts on Air.